Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Today's Gospel seems very apt for this, the first Sunday of Lent, as we, like Jesus, have just begun a 40-day fast, a 40-day fast of Lent. And we may already be struggling with that fast, which just began on Wednesday. And if not, it's likely that we see Easter as a long way off, it being, after all, on April 16th, about six weeks away. And if you're good at math, you might be going, well, but wait, six weeks, that's 42 days. We started on Wednesday, that sounds like 46 days. Um, yes, it is, but we are a bit luckier than Jesus in that we get to take off every Sunday in Lent. So it is six weeks of six days, which is 36 plus the four we just finished. So today, go enjoy some delicious bacon, chicken or beef. I will be. But anyway, we can see we already have it better than Jesus in the wilderness, not just because we get a weekly reprieve from fasting, but because, well, as I look around, this isn't exactly a wilderness. We have plenty of other distractions, other things to fill what might be a challenging period of fasting. And hopefully, Satan himself is not knocking at your door. Where is he? The temptation of Christ taken from today from Matthew's gospel may seem very distant to us. It seems unlikely that you probably share most of the temptations that tempt Christ directly. For example, you're not fasting to the extent, I hope, that a loaf of bread is likely to put you over the edge. Or more literally, I hope you're not likely to jump off the edge of a building because someone tells you that if you do and have faith in God, that he will save you. And while the devil might come down to Georgia for a fiddle duel, I doubt He's taking you up to offer you all the kingdoms of the world. So what's up here? What does this story have to do with us beyond being a nice basis for the 40-day Feast of Lent? Well, to see the connection, we need to go to a place that's even more distant and once again brush up on our Old Testament. As we frequently point out here at the Advent, understanding the New Testament is quite challenging without a solid understanding of the Old. After St. Paul was struck down from his horse, despite his training at the feet of one of the greatest rabbis of all time, Gamaliel, he had to spend years re-examining the scriptures to realize that, in fact, the prophecies were all pointing to the suffering servant of Jesus as the Messiah. And the need to have a deep understanding of the old to understand the new is of particular importance to St. Matthew's Gospel, which was written to a Jewish audience and which recapitulates Jesus' life that Matthew saw in the context of the Exodus. And today's story is no exception. Here, Jesus is in the desert, not for 40 years like the Israelites, but for a mere 40 days. Yet he faces the same temptations that the Israelites faced in the desert. And in fact, Matthew constructs the narrative so that Jesus faces them in the same order as the Israelites. First, Jesus' temptation is about bread. Likewise, the first issue among the Israelites was in the 16th chapter of Exodus. As they journeyed from Elam, they came 
to the wilderness of sin. Now quoting from Exodus. On the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Now, of course, we know the rest of this part of the story about the manna raining down from heaven each day to feed the Israelites. And here in our gospel today, Jesus is tempted with respect to food. But instead of quoting something from Exodus, he quotes Deuteronomy. And yet when we, and we, and when we read that in its full context, his scriptural defense to the devil makes clear the connection between this aspect of Exodus we just talked about and Jesus' temptation. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Direct connection, right? Next in the story, again quoting from Exodus, now chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa or, and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? First it was food, now it's water. And although the immediate connection to Jesus' story, again, might not be quite as apparent, I hope that last bit and a little bit that I kind of emphasized in the middle will help cement the two together for you. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And if that doesn't convince you, what does Jesus say to Satan? Well, now he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16 which more fully in its context is, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Directly talking about his, the, what's going on here in the book of Exodus. So we're seeing a pattern. And then what? Well, the Israelites, right, they end up at Sinai. And then where what happens? Moses gets the Ten Commandments, which notably the first is, you shall have no other gods before me. But as he comes down the mountain, what are the people doing but worshiping a golden calf? because they basically got bored waiting for Moses to come back. And, of course, the rest of the story of the Exodus is that they do almost get to the promised land, and they just, but they still just can't do what the Lord is commanding them to do. They're still putting other gods first, sometimes literally, but other times the God is themselves and what they think is right. 
And respect, and with respect to the kingdoms and all that the devil is tempting Jesus about, there's a direct connection, right, with all that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Recall God's promise to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be a blessing. To Isaac, live in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For I will give to you and your offspring all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father, and will multiply your offspring as the stars of the sky and give all these lands to your offspring. In your offering, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And to Jacob, and your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you, in your seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The promised land is the fulfillment of the first part of those promises of all the nations in the world. But the Israelites don't fall through with all God asks of them. And so that generation never reaches it. And so when Jesus is tempted with all the kingdoms of the world, the same, very same promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what does he do? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, which again links this directly back to the failure of the Israelites in their wandering in the desert for 40 years. In this full context, it says, starting with verse 10, so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. In the temptation of Christ, we see Jesus succeed in 40 days in every way that the Israelites failed in 40 years. And this is a big part of what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. He's also trying to tell us that God can be relied on for our food, for our water, for every need. And indeed, that God will provide for us far more than we ask for. Houses full of good things, large and beautiful cities, wells we didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees we did not plant, if we can simply fear the Lord our God and serve him and him alone. So what will we, brothers and sisters, make of our 40 days of Lent? Will we wander like the Israelites, or will we have the laser-sharp focus of Jesus? Will we grumble against the Lord and his church for establishing this corporate fast? Or we trust that if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us? Maybe more importantly, what will be the outcome of our journey in the desert? Not just during the next 40 days, but over the next 40 months, the next 40 years, or whatever God grants to us in this short life. Do we trust the Lord to provide us with our basic needs of food and water? Again, maybe not surf and turf at the flesh pots of Egypt, but enough to survive even in the harsh conditions of the desert. That's one of the key motivations for the fast of Lent, to turn our recognition of the true source of our basic needs, for example, for food, to God, to trust in him, to accept the basics and realize that they are more than sufficient for our needs and in fact alleviate us of the burdens of so many things that we create for ourselves. Fasting creates space 
for less time thinking about and preparing for and cleaning up from meals, space that hopefully gives us some room to think about God. If we can only trust him rather than in the grumbling of our bellies as the Israelites did. And we only have to do it for six days before we get a reprieve. And that's after we got four days to practice just this week at the beginning. If the fast hasn't gone perfect for you, no problem. It happens. Maybe you fell into your habits, went right into the fridge and got something out and it was halfway down your throat before you realized. No big deal. It happens. Just get back up and keep going. We see that in the desert, if the Israelites could have just repented after the first, the second, the third times that they failed, God was still ready to be merciful to them, and yet they just couldn't. So never give up. That's exactly what Satan wants. Second, do we test God? Are we reckless? I doubt that most of you are the reckless sort that might jump off a building hoping to, hoping to be borne up by angels. Probably not even on a bungee cord. But, um, and that's despite Lily, who yesterday decided to ride down the big, big hill next to our house thinking it was worthy of a challenge and merrily, merrily doing so before she crashed her bike at the foot. But most of us aren't re reckless that way. We learned our lesson like Lily did. Right, Lily? How, though, are we reckless? Well, we're reckless through sin. The wages of which, as you recall, are death. We recklessly test God every time we knowingly sin. We test God's radical forgiveness of us, knowing that Jesus is covering all of our sins, putting them truly behind us. We treat it as a license for sin when we know that the pages of the Bible tell us otherwise. So catch yourself believing that before you act in that sinful manner. Get control of yourself and realize that you normally aren't one to jump off of buildings before you take the next step. Finally, perhaps you don't think that you are subject to being tempted by control of all the kingdoms and nations of this world. I think that's merely because you have enough humility to recognize that isn't likely to happen, and yet you share in this temptation. You want control over not the kingdoms of the world, but just to be the king of your own little kingdom, your home, your workplace, right? Parents, that's why you yell at your kids, right? Children, that's why you won't share with your siblings, right? You want to be boss, whoever we are. Some of us do it by direct aggression, others by passive aggression, but we all want to be in control. And that wish to be the, in control is the source of so much of our sin. Here we're being told to let go of that concept of control and instead be subject only to God's control. And this is, again, part of what Lent is training us for the weeks and years that follow. Obedience through, again, following not the fast we hope to have, but the fast the church prescribes. The church is teaching us obedience to God, in this case through submission to his church, the body of Christ, such that we can be more obedient to God. <clears throat> and if we can't be obedient to just this little thing, then we should again realize the test that we're putting God to. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a fast to follow obediently. Just don't eat of the tree of good and evil. And yet, they listened to the serpent who told them they would not die. They tested the word of God, and they ate. In that one act, they changed the course of the universe. It's a weighty thing to put that on your shoulders, to think about how your unwillingness to fast from just one thing your willingness to test God, your want for control changed the course of the universe, but they do. So my brothers and sisters, realize that the little things do matter. 
and strive not to live by bread alone, but by the, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Worship only the Lord thy God and him only serve and recognize that we've tested the Lord enough. And every time he's borne us up again from our, from our fall, as we heard in the um, propers today taken from Psalm 91 throughout the Mass and then in the tract that we just read, the entire psalm. Every time he's borne us up from our fall, so much so, he's already made good on that promise he made back to Adam and Eve right after they fell to defeat our enemy. That he's proved, he's proved faithful there. He saved us from all our enemies, including Satan himself. And as you continue your Lenten journey, face your temptations with valor and realize the little things matter. But that even when you fall in the little or the great, you have nothing to fear because if you put your trust in God, and God will always have your back. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.